The Nebo Company presents Leading the Emergence with your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome to Leading the Emergence. Today, my guest is Dr. Lena Wen. She is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Lena is a CNN medical analyst and a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, where she writes a weekly column, and also she anchors a new Post newsletter called The Checkup with Dr. Wen. Previously, she served as Baltimore's health commissioner, and she's the author of a new book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. One of my favorite quotes from uh, the many endorsements of her book, Lifelines, comes from um, Andy Slavik, the former senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response. Um, Andy said, before public health became the thing everyone was talking about, there was Dr. Lena Wen in the center of it all and focused squarely on the people in the margins. And so I'd like to just... um, have a conversation today with you, Lena, and explore this idea of the post-pandemic future. What is emerging and what can we anticipate and how can we help shape it? Thank you very much, Kate. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me to be here with you today. Lena, your book came out this summer and it's an amazing read. Um, The title of your book is called Lifelines and it's an insider's account of public health and its crucial role today. And it covers really the opioid addiction crisis to the global pandemic. And I think one of my favorite things about it is it's also the inspiring story of your own journey from a struggling immigrant to being very well known today, one of Time's 100 most influential people, which I think is sort of an indication of how much of an audience you've gained. Um, your story is compelling, it's fascinating, and I think. You're clearly a messenger of our time when it comes to understanding public health. Well, I appreciate that. And I actually wanted to mention that I wrote Lifelines, not at all intending for it to be a memoir. I had initially wrote this book. The working title for the book before was Public Health Saved Your Life Today. You just don't know it. This idea that public health works when it's invisible. And so how can we put the face on public health? It can't just be about prevention. When you prevent something from happening, people don't understand what is that thing that could have happened but didn't happen because of your work. And so I wanted to demonstrate through Lifelines or through the initial book um, about the life-saving and life-changing work of public health through discussing the work that we did in Baltimore to reduce infant mortality, for example, by 38% in seven years, or to um, cut the overdose deaths and save over 3,000 lives in a three-year period through our naloxone outreach and education programs. But then in writing Lifelines, I also came to see how so much of my own story And what you're alluding to, Kate, is also a story of public health in its own way. For example, my parents and I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight. We were um, we eventually came and stayed um, on political asylum and we came with just forty dollars to our name. Um, My parents, um, even though they worked multiple jobs, we still went through periods of experiencing homelessness. We depended on public housing and went to public school throughout. We depended on Medicaid. When my mother was pregnant with my little sister, she depended on WIC. We were on food stamps. I mean, all these things that for us were our safety net, 
there were so many times in my upbringing where something could have gone in a very different direction. We're so fortunate that it did not. And I think it gave me a deep appreciation of why it's so important for us to care for everyone, including the most vulnerable. Yeah, I think that I think I think you said that so well. And my question is about the very definition of public health. And I know that um, for most of us, sort of typical uh, everyday Americans, we hear the phrase public health. We think we know what it means, um, and yet it's become really clear to us during the pandemic that the public health has to be considered in a way that's different than the way we think about our own health. And so I I wanted to ask you, Lena, if you could give us a bit of perspective, what is public health from your perspective? Yeah, it's a challenging question to answer because public health may mean different things to different people. And I actually think that it's okay to have this really encompassing definition of what public health is, as long as we're not trapped in decision paralysis, as, as I'll talk about. Look, one way to illustrate this is through an example. I had a patient whom I got to know very well in the emergency department, which is never good because working in the ER, there is a failure in our health system when someone comes in all the time. This was an eight-year-old boy who came in all the time because of asthma. But what he needed was not a new inhaler or better steroids. What was going on was that he and his mother were experiencing homelessness. They were in and out of shelters where people around them smoked. Then at some point, they found housing, but across the street from an incinerator. Then they were in a row house, surrounded by row houses that were vacant and had mold and other allergens that were triggering his asthma. The definition of public health in this case is there are so many other factors that are not just about health care and the literal medications that we can give him that also make a big impact on his health and well-being. In this sense, the air that we breathe, the food that we have access to, the educational opportunities that there are, economic inequality. I mean, all these things also impact people's health and well-being. In a sense, that is also part of the definition of public health. And at the time of COVID, we also came to understand public health in a different way too, which is that Our health decisions don't always just impact us. You could maybe say that about a choice to eat certain foods or even a choice to smoke if you're smoking in in your own home and we're not talking about secondhand smoke. But when it comes to a potentially deadly infectious illness, I think we've all seen that our destinies are wrapped up in one another's. And something that is that seems like an individual choice, but when it impacts other people, also becomes about the public's health as well. Now, I started off saying this about decision paralysis because it's something that I really emphasize in Lifelines, this idea that sometimes when public health is about so many factors, and we know that health can impact so many factors, but also that all these other things also impact health, that sometimes you feel like, well, where do I even begin? And I think as a result you get caught up in this this pattern of saying we need long-term change. And yes, it's absolutely true that we need systemic change. But I hope we can commit to that long-term change while also taking short-term actions right now too. I'm really, I really appreciate the way that you just described that. And I, I, I love the juxtaposition of long-term thinking and short-term change. Sort of how do we where are we going? What's our vision of how this is going to 
uh, how how progress could look, right? And then also, how do we make immediate change in places where we need to? And I'm, I was also struck, um, Lena, by how you described the systemic nature of public health, that it's not one thing, it's many things. And that sometimes when you're meeting a patient, you're really just sort of seeing the tip of the iceberg, to use that um, old metaphor, and you're, you're meeting that person. But actually what you're encountering is the consequences of the system that they've been living in, the circumstances, and all of the things that surround that. And so it is a complex picture. Um, I know that um, the pandemic has really thrown into relief for all of us the disparities in healthcare um, nationwide and perhaps has given us a, a startling look at the readiness of our public health system to handle a wide-scale health crisis like we've encountered. Um, what do you think we can now see that maybe uh, was clear to some but not all before the pandemic? I think there are two issues that have become abundantly clear and are not new issues, but are certainly unveiled because of the pandemic. One is the lack of attention to our public health infrastructure. Part of the issue or the consequence of having public health being so invisible is that it becomes the first thing on the chopping block when it comes to budget time. We know that local and state health departments have lost something like 30% of their workforce over the last couple of dozen years. People were already wearing multiple hats before the pandemic, and it always felt like we were robbing Peter to pay Paul, as in the same individuals working on school health and helping our children with asthma in schools Whenever there was a cold emergency, a weather emergency, they would be pulled to staff homeless shelters. And then the people who are working on the opioid epidemic, the opioid epidemic doesn't go away, but now you have Zika and measles and tuberculosis. The same people get pulled away to do that. And so it, it never felt like we had enough people to, to do the work that we did, that there's always more to be done as it was. And then you add a pandemic on top of that. And those all those individuals I mentioned now, in addition to doing their previous jobs, now they have to be standing up testing sites, figuring out vaccinations, doing door-to-door -door outreach, and um, doing contact tracing. I mean, I, I hope if it's anything that we've learned in COVID, it's that our public health infrastructure has been neglected for so long, and this is the consequence, is a global pandemic when we underinvest in it, when we undervalue it, and when it's neglected. The other aspect that we've seen so clearly is the underlying disparities and inequities that have long been there. Certainly COVID did not create these disparities, but has unveiled them and unmasked them for everyone to see. And I think part of the issue is that whenever I hear the response to statistics like African-Americans, Latino-Americans, or Native Americans are disproportionately dying from COVID-19, sometimes there's a sense of, well, maybe there's something about the virus well, guess what? It's not the virus that's doing the discriminating. The virus is affecting people as it, as it affects people. The virus doesn't care what ethnic background you come from or what geographical background you come from. But rather what's happening is you look at a city like mine in Baltimore where one in three African-Americans live in a food desert compared to one in 12 whites. Is it any surprise that African-Americans have a higher baseline rate of high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, 
all of which are predisposing factors to severe outcomes from COVID-19. Or what about the fame? What, what about the fact that people with lower income tend to live in multi-generational houses? They tend to not have the privilege of physical distancing. They tend to be essential workers, and as a result, also had higher exposure to uh, to COVID nineteen as well. And so, I think we've seen these health disparities in a way that may not have been apparent to your point, Kate, earlier for many people. And we've also seen tragically that unless we commit to overcoming these disparities, they don't get better on their own. And if that, if anything, they perpetuate and get worse. It's a perfect um, transition, perhaps, to talking about this idea of the emergent future. And when I think about the emergent future, I think about like um, I suppose we would say post-pandemic future. Um, and uh, you know, I've, I've heard many people say that uh, there's not it's not going to be like we have the pandemic today and then tomorrow we don't. Right? There's a a, a period of time through which we're passing in which the pandemic is part of our lives. But I would love to just hear your thoughts, Lena, about like, what can we expect when it comes to the idea of moving through and beyond the pandemic? Do you have a sense of what that might look like as an experience for us? Well, I'll preface and say that all of us, anyone who has tried to prognosticate this entire pandemic has probably been wrong more times than they've been right because of how tricky this virus is. And also, this is not like predicting the weather. Human behavior also has a lot to do with what happens with the virus going forward. So that's the big caveat. I I, um, I recently wrote a Washington Post column on how I think we could be at a point where the end of the pandemic is in sight. Now, the end of the pandemic, by the way, does not mean the end of COVID-19, as in it very well could be that COVID-19 is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, for the years to come, at least, because as long as there's COVID raging in other parts of the world and here in the U.S., it's not going to be gone. But that said, I think we can change the outlook at some point from the pandemic being the first thing on our minds for all decisions the first thing on our minds in thinking about school and work and social interactions. And we can change it from this existential emergency into a manageable crisis. I think we're not that far if we get three more things in place. And we're not that far from two out of these three things. First is vaccines for younger children. We're not that far. As of the time that we're speaking, our federal health officials are about to review the data for 5 to 11-year-olds. And I would hope that for children of my kids' age, um, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old and a four-year-old, that we'll be able to have vaccines for them at the beginning of 2022. Now, that may seem like a long time in the future, but we're talking about a few months. But I think that unless we're able to get vaccines for younger kids, there are a lot of parents who are living with a lot of caution, not for ourselves, but for our unvaccinated kids. The second thing is we need to have oral outpatient treatment. That will help us to turn COVID from something that is a potential death sentence if you're diagnosed to something that actually is manageable and is and you can live with. I would love to see essentially the Tamiflu for COVID-19, which again, not that far on the horizon. There is a um, an oral treatment, uh, Munipiravir, an antiviral manufactured by Merck that is going to go through emergency use authorization by the FDA in the coming weeks. And there are other um, companies that are manufacturing similar types of antivirals. So great. Um, there's really good hope on the horizon there. 
And then the third thing that we need a lot more of and that we are not close to this point is widespread testing. It's still far too difficult to get testing. Haven't we learned anything during this pandemic <laughs> that if you don't know where the virus is, you're flying blind? And we're still flying blind in many ways. I would love for us to get to the point that the UK and other countries have gotten to, which is that it becomes the norm when families are getting together, when friends are getting together for dinner. Everyone takes a rapid test at the door. Wouldn't it be great if our kids can get tested prior to going to school? Or if you know that when you're in a conference room with 50 people, that all of them just tested negative that morning. That is how we will begin to live with the virus, knowing that it's not gone, it is with us, but we can figure out ways to reduce the harm. And I think testing has to be a crucial part of that. And we're not even close to being there when it comes to having that kind of widespread accessibility. Thank you. That was really helpful to actually hear you talk about it and also hopeful to hear some of those things that are developing and are coming along. Um, yeah, I feel I spent a lot of last year, Lena, talking with people in groups about um, how to deal with uncertainty, how to run their business or to lead their organization. How what, what could you put your faith in? What were some of the things that you could observe and, and draw conclusions from enough to make decisions for the responsibilities that you were managing. And, you know, I want to just say again, thank you to you because your voice was one of those that I feel um, guided a lot of us in, in learning about what's coming and also what to do in the current situation that we were facing. Um, when I think about the, the future of um, public health, the future of our health. I have two other questions I wanted to explore with you. One is, um, I'm back on public health again, and I want to go to the, the the juxtaposition of my health, my choices, public health um, mandates, requirements. Like, what do you think? Like, how do we how do we understand the imperatives uh, of a pandemic? Right on. on public health and what that translates to for us as individuals who want to make independent individual choices about our health care. I know this is a huge issue. A colleague of mine, Sam Wong, a neuroscientist at Princeton, and I wrote an op-ed for The Post a few weeks ago. We make what to some might sound like a startling claim, which is that we should think about the choice to remain unvaccinated the same way as we see the choice to drink and drive. And that's because this is not just about you. Look, if you want to remain unvaccinated and you don't go into the public at all, or every time you go out into the public, you're masking and, and distancing, that's one thing. That would be the same as someone saying, I want to be intoxicated, but in my own home or in a bar, but I'm not going to, I, what I choose is not going to hurt anybody else. It's only my decision. But if you're drinking and then you get behind the wheel of a car, it's no longer about you. It's about the danger that you could pose to other people around you who did not choose to be harmed by you. I would apply that same analogy to the choice to remain unvaccinated as well. If you go out in public, there are other people around you who did not choose to be exposed to someone who potentially carries a deadly virus. There are over 7 million, around 7 million Americans who are severely immunocompromised, who, even if they're vaccinated themselves, likely are not protected from COVID-19. There are many more people who are older, who are medically fragile, for whom even a mild breakthrough infection, if they were to get it, 
might land them in the hospital or cause them severe ill or otherwise cause them severe illness. There are our young children who did not choose to still have no immune protection. They're too young to be vaccinated. And then in general, there are plenty of other people who just don't want to get COVID. They don't want to potentially have long-term consequences. Why does your right to remain unvaccinated and be out in public override their rights to not get a potentially deadly illness? And I think we really need to frame freedom in a different way. What about the freedom to stay healthy? What about the freedom also to accurate information? We're facing not only a pandemic of the virus, but we're facing a pandemic of misinformation and disinformation. Isn't there something about how this level of disinformation is also taking away people's freedom to make decisions to protect themselves and their families? I think we really have to reframe this idea of choice, autonomy, and freedom, given that we're in a pandemic and over 700,000 Americans have already died from it. Oh, goodness. Thank you so much. That That's, I think, helpful and, and provocative and, and important for us to to hear you say and to take in and and process and think about. And I know there are many people listening who will appreciate the perspective and and take it to under consideration and and really challenge their own and the thinking of others. So thank you for that. Um, my last question for you today is really about this idea of emergence, right? So let's fast forward. Let's imagine that it's, I don't know, a few years from now, and we've gotten through this in the ways that you've described already. What's your vision for the future of public health? What can we learn from this? And how can, what's the, what should we be striving toward to um, create in this, in this future? Well, as you know, Kate, I'm an optimist, and so I want to give you my optimistic view, although I also want to mention my one great worry that will prevent us from getting there. And it's actually a different worry compared to a few months ago. My vision for public health, of course, is that we now as a society can embrace it, can finally understand it. We can finally put the face on what has been invisible and will invest in it, invest in this idea of prevention the way that we really should have years and years ago, and that we'll understand that public health ties to everything, that if you care about jobs and the economy, you should care about a productive and healthy workforce. If you care about education, you should care about our children being healthy. If you care about public safety, then also understanding that treating addiction, mental health issues as crimes will not work. It's inhumane. And what we need to do is to be treating public safety also as a public health issue and intertwined closely with public health as well. I mean, I, I would want to see a much broader investments early on in our children, in families, um, in helping the most vulnerable. Also, the understanding that focusing on equity does not take away from anyone. As in the when you when we're talking about overcoming disparities, it's not like you're taking years of life from one group of people and adding it to another. The, but rather that when we assist the most vulnerable, it helps everyone in society. That's what I would love to see. But here's my worry. Several months ago, if you and I had been talking, I might have said that my worry was that COVID would pass we would forget about public health and we'll be back to square one. And that would not be good, obviously, because we should have learned something from this. But I actually have an even graver, if you will, more dire worry at this point, which is that over the last several months in particular, public health has become so polarized 
and so politicized, it's been inserted in the middle of ideological culture wars. There have been um, now over 100 laws passed by state legislatures to restrict public health authority. And that doesn't just affect COVID. I mean, if you take away the authority of a local health official to apply quarantine, what happens if there's a patient with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis and you can't quarantine that individual? If you take away the authority to apply mask mandates, what happens if there's a new virus that's even more contagious and is airborne and now we can't protect against that? I really worry that in certain parts of the country, public health really has gained traction and people are now thinking about public health in a way they didn't before. And that's great. But that there are other parts of the country where the public health infrastructure that was already bare bones to begin with is now decimated to a point that's going to be very hard to recover from. I'm very worried about the fact that over 500 top local health officials have resigned or been forced out of their jobs simply for trying to do their jobs. Um, I'm very concerned about what public health is going to look like going forward, again, in a very different way than I might have been concerned about several months ago. But on the bright side of this, the only thing that's going to turn it around is public perception and is the work of each and every one of us to talk about the importance of public health in our own lives. Yes, I mean, I, I, it, it's it's a it's a serious concern that you've just raised, and I think it's um, it's a you know it's a, it's a shadow cast over us as we think about sort of let's take the lessons, let's find the way, but let's actually notice that the time that we're in is one where our shared public health is um, politicized and polarizing. And it's very hard for us to be certain that we're creating a better and safer future with this happening in our country right now. Um, and, and I like your call to action, Lena. I like that you're asking each of us to think about how we are um, engaging and, and, and the message that we're bringing and how we're helping people to think about the we and not just sort, sort of the individual or the uh, political uh, angle on this. And I know it's hurting everybody in the moment. Um, I want to give you a chance to give us one parting thought. Um, I really appreciate the time and, and the, the great information and ideas you've shared with us today. What do you want us all to hear as we think about um, the emerging future and uh, how we can create this better future? It's hmm, a great question. And I wish I had a better answer to this. I would say I would encourage everyone to not let perfect be the enemy of the good and look at what it is that we can do right now. Let me give you a parable. I wrote about this in Lifelines and actually the parable has a particular meaning, but I took away a different lesson than the one that maybe people might have originally taken away from the parable. The parable is about going upstream. The uh, concept is that there are three friends walking along a riverbank and there's a very quickly moving current and they're seeing children drowning and they want to help. And so the first friend jumps in and tries to rescue children one by one, but isn't able to, um, to rescue most of them. The second one goes further upstream, sees a dam and tries to repair the dam. The third friend keeps on running and the first two shout after him, but why aren't you, why are you running? Why aren't you helping us? And the third person says, well, 
I'm going further upstream to see who's throwing the kids in in the first place. Now, the point of this parable is to say, let's go upstream. Let's figure out the root cause because that's the answer. My takeaway when I heard this parable wasn't, that wasn't exactly it. My takeaway was, but you should also do what you can with what you have, depending on who you are and in the position that you're in. I absolutely believe that we need to go further upstream, and I commend that third friend for trying to find the root cause. But if that root cause is going to take time, if that's going to take a lot of work and many decades of hard work because it didn't, we didn't get here overnight, we, didn't, we, we cannot overcome racism and structural inequities overnight. But while we work on those things, we should also still be trying to fix the dam. And we should definitely still focus on the children because every person's life that we can touch, that we can save, that we can change, that will make a difference too. And so I think sometimes people get caught in this, well, unless I can change everything, what's the point? Well, I want the takeaway for people to be, let's look to see what it is that we can do right now with the tools that I have based on the position that I'm in that I'm in right now. I don't want to wait until I'm the CEO of some company. I can't wait until I have this perfect job. What is it that I can do right now? Maybe the people that I can influence are people in my inner circle. But if I can help to get my aunt or my cousin to take COVID seriously and to be vaccinated, it could save their life. I mean, you don't have to have a certain position or have a certain platform to start making a difference right now. Not So let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. And let's not wait until we have the perfect solutions or see the perfect opportunities. But as you're saying, let's really uh, see the opportunity that is in front of us. And we all have that opportunity. Um, again, I want to say thank you, Lena. Um, thank you for your call, call to action and also your um, guidance as we've continued to navigate through the pandemic and beyond. Um, and I want to just um, say in closing that I wish you well, and I, want to say thank you on behalf of our listeners and of myself for the great work you're doing as an advocate for our public health. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. It was great to join you today. Leading the Emergence is sponsored by The Nebo Company. If you would like to talk to Nebo about how to support the leaders in your organization, please contact us at www.nebocompany.com. Thank you.